Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Jirgelekte. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Change. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. My name is Valentina Gritti and I'm the podcast host and the global community and project manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. I'm glad to let you know that this year the Sfin podcast is hosting a new series all dedicated to the European policy in terms of food and agriculture. This series will be conducted by the Slow Food Europe office in Brussels. Thanks to this office, Slow Food is involved in the political debate on the European level. The special host of this series is Alice Poiron, communication officer at Slow Food Europe. The topics touched will be in line with the most updated and relevant debates around food and agriculture in Europe. Today, we kick off the series with the topic of new GMOs. So I will now leave the word to Alice. Enjoy the podcast! Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of the Slow Food Europe's podcast, where we explore and dissect for you European debates on hot topics regarding food and agriculture. I am Alice Poiron, Communications Officer at Slow Food's office in Brussels, and today we will talk about new GMOs, also called gene editing. This topic has received a great deal of attention in the last month and has generated a very polarized debate. On one side, the agri-food industry which has been pushing for the deregulation of this new generation of GMOs at the level of the European Union. And on the other side, many civil society organizations which are fighting for them to remain strictly regulated, like all GMOs, to prevent unsafe food from ending up on our plates. We are recording this podcast just one week after the European Commission has published a new study on the issue, so we have a lot to discuss. So, What are new GMOs? What is the discussion about? What is the European Union proposing? We will answer these questions and many more with our three panelists. So I have with me today Elisa D'Aloisio, peasant farmer at the European Coordination via Campesina with a PhD in genetics and practical expertise in GMOs. Hello, Elisa. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Martin Sommer. Policy Coordinator at IFOAM Organics Europe, the Association for Organic, Organic Food and Farming in Europe. Hi, Martin. Hello, Alice. Nice to be here. And Madeleine Kost, Policy Officer at Slow Food Europe. Welcome, Madeleine. Thanks, Alice. Happy to be here. So, good afternoon to you all, and thank you for accepting our invitation to participate to today's discussion. Uh, let's dive right away into the topic. So maybe we can start with you, Elisa. So could you explain to us what new GMOs are and how different they are from old GMOs? Okay. Um, to start, I would like to underline that this debate is actually legal, not technical. And uh, lobbies keep inventing new words to confuse the issue. New GMOs, NBTs, genome editing, genomic techniques. It's, um, it's a way to make confusion where there is no confusion. The European Court of Justice has made it clear and is not speaking about new or old GMOs, but just about GMOs. The main difference is the claim being made for them. Either way, new or old GMOs are conceived because the agriculture, the industrial agriculture, arrived to a problem that has to be solved. And instead of solving it with evolution, with changing the concept, You just think that if you can change that simple gene, for example, for 
longer shelf life or not browning. For example, we have mushrooms that have this this trait, the non-browning trait, apples that have the non-browning trait. You think that just changing that little trait, you solve the whole issue. The problem is that either way, new or old, that those techniques mess up with the DNA of the plant and cause consequences in other parts of the DNA that you cannot control. New GMOs actually are GMOs not only because the same techniques that you use to make them now, either way, even if you have uh, the scissors so precise, which they're not, to have those scissors working, you need to put them inside the plant. And to do that, you use old techniques. So to make the new techniques work, you are using the old techniques. And the narrative never tells you that. The narrative only focuses on it's so complicated, you cannot understand it, it's completely different. And you stay there and you start thinking, how will I ever understand it? But at the end, if you would know the whole narrative, the whole process, with no doubt, everybody would be able to say, it is a GMO, it starts as a GMO, it is a GMO also in the second part of the steps, like with the new techniques, and the reason why they are made is still the same. Not to solve real problems like climate change, but just to make the plant more useful for the industrial agriculture. Therefore, all this narrative is made to confuse you, not to tell you the whole story, and the claim to look at the product, with product they mean the plant that obtained through this process, to look at the product and not at the process is just to make you look away from reality and believe the narrative, the fairy tale they tell you. Whatever they claim, they will never ever be able to return the plant to its previous non-transgenic state. Okay, thank you, Elisa, for this explanation. And so, Madeleine, like just to continue uh, on that topic of setting up the scene, like what what is the discussion about? Yeah, so what is being discussed right now uh, actually is a bit like what Elisa is saying, is how these new GMOs should be regulated. And when we talk about their regulation, we're talking about what kind of risk and safety assessments are mandatory before they can be placed on the market, how they must be labeled, and how they must be traceable throughout the supply chain. So um, in Europe, GMOs and new GMOs fall under the same European Union rules, uh, which means that all European countries must regulate them in the same way. We're very lucky here in Europe because we have very strict rules for GMOs, uh, and the aim of these um, rules is really uh, stated to protect human health and the environment. And uh, therefore, they ensure that if a company develops and wants to sell a GMO in the EU, it has to pass a strict safety assessment, and then it must be made transparent that the crop was produced uh, using GM technology, and any product containing this GMO has to be labeled as containing so. So it's possible to produce and sell GMOs in the EU, but actually we only have one GM maize crop being produced in Spain. And most other countries have made the further decision to ban the production of GMOs in their country entirely. But like Elisa said before, since 2018, the European Court of Justice decided that new GMOs have to be regulated under the same rules, which was cl clearly great news for EU consumers, but also for small-scale farmers, for the organic sector, because it meant that these new technologies wouldn't make their way onto our plates untested and unlabeled. 
The problem, though, is that ever since, uh, this didn't make the industry very happy uh, because it makes it more difficult for them to put gene-edited products onto the EU market. And ever since, they have been pushing very hard to change the situation. Um, and there are now many European policymakers who agree and who are open to deregulating these new, te uh, these new technologies. So last week, uh, the European Commission published a study which uh, unfortunately concludes that they believe that the current GMO rules are unfit for purpose and they must propose and they might propose to deregulate new GMOs because they claim that new GMOs have the potential to contribute to sustainable food systems. I think that none of our organizations agree with this claim, uh, but I guess we will get back into this a little bit later. Thank you, Madeleine. I see. And Martin, like, uh, who is pushing for these new GMOs and why? Yeah, so that's a big question. And I think we have to look at this from an economical point of view because you have two major players here. On the one side, it's the agrochemical companies who want to sell their products to farmers. And then you have the uh, conventional farming sector who wants to sell their products to retailers and as, as well as consumers. So... Um, so the agrochemical companies are very much pushing for deregulation um, because GMOs, they offer a very clear business model and a higher return on investment because, as you might know, in contrast to classical breeding, products from uh, genetic engineering are patentable. And uh, this means they uh, the access is limited to this genetic material and you can sell it Uh, for higher prices uh, to farmers. And uh, as with the old uh, GMOs, we've seen that these companies made, make contracts with farmers who, for example, um, prohibit them from reusing their own seeds. And so they all, every growing season, they, uh, they have to buy seeds instead of using their uh, own ones. And it also offers uh, opportunities for product bundling. So that means basically you can sell a herbicide-resistant plant together with a herbicide because you are often a company who sell, uh, produces both. And um, so we have to understand that these companies, they do not have an intr intrinsic interest to cut down their own market and to 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 develop products that actually um, would result in them selling less. So we have to understand these um, these processes that are at hand. Um, so um, a deregulation would reduce costs for these companies and allow them to have a quicker market access. That's why they are heavily uh, lobbying for deregulation. And then we also have the conventional farming sector. So other than the organic farming sector, which is much more looking at agriculture and farming in a system-based and circular way, conventional farming is looking for highly controlled production environment. And in these kind of environments, genetic engineering offers targeted solutions for quite narrow problems and suggests quick fixes rather than substantial changes in agricultural practice and for the we have to understand that from a perspective of many farmers this is quite attractive to have like a simple solution for a complex uh, problem at least that's the that's the promise that is made to farmers and farmers they want to use less uh, pesticides for example so the promise that you can reduce pesticides is very appealing because they want to reduce costs pesticides cost money and they also want to make a contribution 
because they are often perceived as like the evildoers, like to environment and so on. And, and, and farmers, they want to change, you know, how they are perceived as well. And so that's why many cons, uh, conventional farmers, they would like to grow these uh, new GMOs. They actually wanted to also grow the old GMOs, but um, the possibilities to sell them were limited because with regulation, consumers can choose and they have chosen in the past to not go for these GMOs. Uh, I was wondering, uh, could you maybe briefly, one after the other, state the position of your organizations on new GMOs? Like why are IFOAM, ECVC and Slow Food opposed to them? So that yeah, the listeners can know where you stand. Maybe we start with you, with, with you, Elisa. First of all, we have to think that organic farmers, small farmers, but even conventional farmers are against uh, new GMOs because the market in Europe is actually a GMO-free market. And allowing uh, GMOs to be unlabeled and be in the market might completely destabilize what we build up in the years, especially for organic farmers. This is an issue because we would lose the transparency and the, uh, the reliability of what we actually are, are working for. It is not easy to understand that uh, releasing a GMO into the field is something that you cannot make undone. It will be there and it will, especially if we don't develop tracing technique, we will not be able to ensure that uh, in the future a product is free of uh, this trace, especially because cross-pollination is still an issue. What we are actually um, opposing to is also, like uh, Martin said before, the fact that we can uh, have patented genes that are already existing in nature. If you claim that you can do something similar to nature and that you can have a resistant gene that might easily be found in nature, who is ensuring uh, a farmer that if he has the same plant with the resistant genes but selected through natural breeding, he's not going to be um, obliged to pay the patent because the gene has been patented before. And we know patents are released. For this product. Uh, Martin before was uh, mentioning that we can have um, an answer uh, or people and farmers are dreaming of a green answer to the use of pesticides due to the new GMOs that I still would like to call GMOs. The fact that you can have a resistant gene and bring it into um, a variety that has not the same resistant gene and make it resistant has a very big issue on the availability of resistant genes in the future. Imagine if we transform every wheat, wheat variety or every grape variety with a certain resistant gene that we have available. And at a certain point, in Europe or in the world or in the fields, we will have a um, loss of biodiversity, not in terms of varieties, but in terms of the resistant genes used to make them better and fitter. But once you have one resistant gene used in a lot of varieties and grown over hectares and hectares of fields, this resistant gene will not last long because it's exposed to natural selection. So most probably the claim we will use less pesticides will transform in please do one or two treatments in the year just to avoid overcoming of the resistant gene. So we will have the same thing as we have it now, year by year, 
with more treatments, and we will lose resistant genes that are available in nature that have been produced by years of selection and evolution. And we will have a, a similar situation that what is known for antibiotic resistance, that we will have lost a very important tool just because we want to apply it to conventional industrial farming that actually causes the problem that we are trying to solve now with GMO. So, Madeleine, what about slow food's position? Yeah, so slow food has some similar worries and objections to uh, La Via Campesina. We have a long-standing opposition to GMOs because of the threat that they pose to biodiversity and specifically to agrobiodiversity, which includes the domestic species of animals and plant varieties, whose existence is really the result of thousands of years of selection by peasants and pastoral communities, but also includes uh, things like bi uh, soil biodiversity. But new GM technology would really go into the opposite direction of where slow food wants our, our food systems to go. There is so much evidence out there today that in order to address the climate change crisis, biodiversity loss crisis, or even the public health problems that we have today, we need to transition towards local and diverse food systems, which would bring not only benefits to consumers, but also to the environment and to small-scale farmers who we need to incentivize to grow in a way that protects our environment. But new GM crops would really perpetuate a system that is based on monocultures, on pesticides, and a system that refuses to look at the core systemic issues of our food systems. And therefore, we really need our policymakers to push for more research and investments to develop and support agroecological practices and local food systems, but not uh, in pursuing biotechnology that really are not addressing any of the systemic issues of our food systems. Thank you, Madeleine. And maybe Martin for iPhone's organic position. Yeah, so, so for the organic movement, um, we have to send a bit like also the historical context, because if we look at the, the, the past experiences that have been made with um, uh, GMOs and, and their impacts, um, it is quite clear that GMOs, they were developed uh, for industrial um, uh, food systems to make plants resistant to herbicides that you can then apply um, um, to the field. And you have to know, for example, uh, synthetic pesticides, they are not part and they're not allowed in organic farming systems as well. So, so from a historical context, these GMOs were actually also never interesting um, for organic farm system because, as I explained earlier, we have a very different um, approach To farming. The second point is that organic is very much concerned when it comes to introducing organisms into the environment um, without taking the um, necessary precautions. And it's also the value-based element of organic farming, basically, that organic farming sees itself as a steward of nature, and therefore we should be very careful with what we introduce into nature. So this is also a part of why organic wants to basically have the capability to avoid it in the production chain because that's what it comes to in the end and that's what the regulation that offers us uh, uh, to do that. And another point relates to socioeconomics because um, as I've touched upon earlier, there's this whole patent uh, landscape uh, associated with um, uh, genetic engineering and this limitation of access to genetic resources. And this is very much in contrast to what organic breeding is trying to do and um, to exchange freely uh, seed material and, and vegetative uh, material 
to breed plants that are adapted to organic farming conditions and also adapted to local uh, conditions. So this is a very different model of seed production uh, compared to the, let's say, industrial model of producing seeds. Thank you uh, for the three of you. So now that we have set the scene of what GMO, GMO, new GMOs are and what the debate is about, I would like to get back to the European Commission study. And I'd like one of you to explain to us what, yeah, what the study is about, what the outcomes are, and to give me your first impressions on it. So maybe we can start with Martin and Elisa and Madeleine, you can jump in if you have extra comments. Yeah, so one thing to notice, because if you think about a study, you might think about a, a research paper, you know, something where there is some actual research being done. This is actually not really what happened here, because it's rather a reproduction of points that were brought forward by different kind of stakeholders that the commission then put together in a document. So there is no deep reflection happening here. So that's what we have to know about this study when we call it study. But the first impressions are to me when I saw it and uh, that the commission really believes um, that these new GMs will uh, contribute to their goal of uh, reducing uh, pesticides because we have to know the political context that in the farm to fork strategy they want to reduce pest synthetic pesticides by a uh, by large amounts this was heavily critiqued by the conventional farming sector by agrochemical companies um, and you could see this kind of study as a kind of a offer that the commission makes uh, to say, uh, uh, look, we believe in this opportunity to re reduce pesticides um, to uh, achieve these reduction goals. They want to loosen up the rules um, when it comes to these uh, new techniques because in their perception, uh, it's always the question about benefits and risks. And from, from their perspective, they see more benefits than risks. And what is a bit frustrating from the perspective of the organic sector is that while the organic sector is mentioned and also the non-GM sector is mentioned uh, in this study, there's really no uh, constructive solutions being provided on how we can uh, ensure also in the future that the uh, food production chain can be kept uh, free of GMOs. So that's why in the end, from the perspective of the organic sector, we are not really happy with the quality that this uh, study is showing because it lacks um, constructive uh, content. Okay, thank you. And Madeleine, Elisa, any comment on this? So, to their big surprise, are the Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice, decided that GMOs and new GMOs are GMOs. It took them a while to try to find a way around it. After pretending that the process is not as important as the product, the idea came to start changing the law on which the European Court of Justice ruling is based. So this study is actually an excuse to do that. And uh, the rhetoric questions could not allow a different answer. So the study was made to give this kind of answer. It's a biased study, it's, a, it, it's, it's an excuse. And the reason why this is happening is because for politics, um, new GMOs are a win-win solution. On one side, uh, Europe is very 
aware of pesticides used. So the no pesticides movement is very, very strong. While after so many years, the no GMO movement, sure to have won the battle and to have an awareness of not using GMO, has relaxed a bit. So what is the reason to use new GMOs is because they are actually promised, and it's a false promise, that we will have less pesticide use. On the other hand, um, the new GMOs are actually a win-win because it allows to simplify the whole food system. The more simple the farming system, the seed system, the more control you have over the whole food and trade system and the easier it is to rule it. So it's actually really a win-win situation that is imposed upon farmers, upon consumers. And this is also the reason why nobody knows about what is a new GMO, because they keep changing the name because they don't want the issue to be made big. They don't want the issue to be talked about. Because if you would talk about the issues, people would ask questions. And it's not that complicated to understand what is a GMO and why these new GMOs are GMOs or why you don't want them. Especially because the concept, how you create a GMO is not really the technique it's how you conceive a plant if you start thinking of how you want a plant and but you do it from the industry and the conventional agro industrial farming how can you conceive a plant that actually is different and sustainable and aware of climate change you cannot win what nature does with evolution and uh, farming and small farmers and many eyes and many field situation and many different climate evolution and selection naturally done is so precise and so fit for climate change answers for less pesticides for resistance for so many so many things that we cannot even con conceive that gmo are a failure from the beginning because again they are born in the head of people who actually see agriculture like mining, money and extracting product. And can you tell me, please, like the three of you, like or maybe we start with you, Martin, like, what are the implications of this study for the organic sector? It is actually quite difficult to predict the exact implications of this study from the organic for the organic sector because it is not very precise. And I said it before, it lacks... It lacks content, um, so everything will depend also on the details that will um, be discussed also by the member states in the coming weeks. But what is clear is that um, if a new legislation would mean that we cannot trace the presence of GMOs in the production chain anymore, um, the reality would be that organic effectively could not guarantee anymore to be GMO-free. and this is actually a big thing because it is written down in the in the organic regulation that organic farming is free of GMOs and it is not to be used in the production process. So that brings along a lot of um, uncertainty because uh, we have high quality standards for ourselves and also those that we want to guarantee to our consumers. So the question is how would consumer trust be affected by this and um, the whole question of contamination of organic fields from neighboring fields, which practice cannot be prevented, it can always happen, it could mean a lot of economic uncertainty also for organic farmers. But having this, it's important to know that these details are still up for discussions and organic movement will do everything to protect um, our members um, from these un 
unwanted consequences. Yeah, and I think one thing that struck me when I was looking at the study is that they say that they highlight that this technology has a lot of potential, uh, potential benefits to um, contribute to sustainable food systems and also potential to contribute to the EU Green Deal, uh, which is the strategy that the European Commission put out uh, last year and uh, to the EU Farm to Fork strategy. But it's really, um, yeah, uh, really confusing to me because uh, the EU farm to fork strategy really takes a holistic approach towards uh, food systems. Uh, it's really going in the right d direction because it's looking at um, health, at the environment, at farm aspects, at animal welfare, uh, and it's proposing a lot of good measures that I'm sure will help uh, to transition towards more sustainable food systems. But uh, and one thing to note as well is that they even uh, say that we we have a target, for example, on organic farming and to develop agroecology. But at the same time, now they are proposing biotechnology as a solution, which is really um, very narrow. And it's doing so in a way that it's not looking at the potential impacts that it can have on all of these other aspects of the food system. If this study brings us to change the legislation just to release GMOs, and if we don't do anything to stop it, and even more, those GMOs are not even traced because it's not considered important to trace them either, then, uh, example for Italy, it will be a disaster because not only organic farmers count on the GMO-free label, the whole food industry in Italy is actually built on the GMO-free market. So even conventional farmers are GMO-free. So it will really cost the farmers their market space. On the other hand, for farmers, we already have lost so much of our independence. All the inputs that we have to put into a farm are the real burden that we have. The more the input, the more the economic challenge and the more difficult it becomes to be stable, to be reliable, to be on the market and to survive economically speaking. On the other hand, our own seeds are with no GMOs, with less inputs because they're actually, they have evolved on the feed. This is so much more easy to work with this kind of seeds especially during climate change and during all this new insects and new pests that are coming, because it's the only answer. We need to be uh, aware that still now food comes from farmers and farmers have to have their, their, their control. And talk about GMO and opening the market to them. It's giving up the control and giving to people who actually want to have uh, money out of the food system. Thank you, Elisa. My last question uh, on this topic, like Madeleine, for the consumers, the environment, like what could a possible deregulation of UGMO mean? Yeah, uh, no, that's a great, great question. I think uh, in terms of labeling, we don't really know all the details yet about what the European Commission would be proposing at this stage. Uh, but if new GMOs are to be deregulated, this could potentially mean that we may no longer be able to choose to buy GM-free food, as it may no longer have to be labeled. Um, and there are potential safety risks with new GMOs. There are studies, you know, that are looking at the possible uh, introduction of allergens or also unintended effects. But essentially, I think for us, the main question is that this is a question of transparency. As consumers, we have the right to know what is in our food, how it is produced, under which conditions, you know, where it's from. 
And for much of our food, this information is becoming more and more available, and citizens are asking for our supply chains to become more transparent so that we can all make better choices. Uh, and yet deregulation would really go contrary to this. And then you also asked about the environment. I mean, there's very little reason to hope that new GMOs could help with protecting the environment. Most of the gene-engineered plants that we have today have been engineered to be tolerant to herbicides. We already mentioned this. Um, and it would mean that a farmer can freely spray their crops with more herbicides uh, and not kill the, the crop itself. So this would in inevitably further entrench a chemical-intensive model of agriculture. And then, you know, there might also be risks uh, to pollinators who rely on the flowers for food. Uh, and of course, as we also mentioned, the real possibility that once a GM crop is being cultivated, that it could contaminate other crops and fields, but also wild plants too. And the point I think here is that we need a case-by-case -case risk assessment uh, to, be, uh, to be sure that these, these GM crops are not unsafe for the environment. But, um, you know, this is what the current EU GMO rules do ensure. They ensure that all of these crops uh, have to go and uh, undergo a risk assessment. So deregulating them would be very risky. Thank you, Madeleine. So now uh, let's talk a bit more about hope and the future. So Elisa and Martin, what alternatives do we have for new GMOs? Yes. Um, so if we look at the alternatives, because in the end, if you say you don't use GMOs, you limit yourself. So what is, what are the other options? And what is very clear is that um, for these complex traits such uh, that are relevant for climate change, such as uh, a drought resistance, for example, classical breeding actually works much better um, than these targeted uh, uh, interventions. So, so when we look at uh, breeding plants that are you know fit for climate uh, change um, there's actually uh, a lot of innovation happening in in classical and conventional um, breeding at the same time organic has always had a bit of a different approach and um, we are also uh, experimenting more and more with actually introducing more diverse seed material uh, onto the feed rather than reducing the diversity that we introduce onto the field. So I'm talking about this organic heterogeneous um, material that would be allowed in organic farming from next year. But when it comes down to the core, the, the focus of organic had always been to develop sound agricultural practices that do address the root causes rather than cure the symptoms. So organic is very much focus on not creating those problems that we then have to uh, cure with quick fixes such as uh, GM, but more have a, a system-based approach. We have so many alternatives that are already outside, but uh, we really need to leave the peasant be peasant and do their job, the seeds be seeds and do their job, biodiversity, to be biodiversity and evolve, and uh, uh, to let um, these factors work together like it ha they have worked for so many thousands of years. And we have to admit that everything that uh, in the last years have been obtained, even with GMO techniques, is based on this plant material that has evolved through the action of seeds, climate, peasant, land, evolution. And this is the only answer that we can actually 
rely on to have a response to climate change and also to become more sustainable. We have to convince who is actually making the rules that peasant farming, organic farming, experimentation on the field, the heterogeneous material is really, really important. As a farmer myself, my wheat is really heterogeneous, 700 varieties altogether. And every year I actually have a different seed proportion of all of them because they react to climate change, to even small climate changes. And I have a material that is actually mine, that I can replant, that it's there, that is growing with me, that I can actually give to my kids and that will make bread and cookies and pastry for my grand-grand-grandchildren because it's there, it's evolving, it's alive. Everything else is actually a dead technique and that is actually the only purpose is to solve the problems that are created by the same people who actually want to solve the problem. So we have the answers. There are a lot of alternatives and people can choose, people really can choose where to buy, how to buy, where to experiment with the farmers and how to embrace together the challenge of climate change. Um, announcing the study this week, Health Commissioner Stella Kiriakidis said that with the safety of consumers and the environment as the guiding principle, now is the moment to have an open dialogue with citizens, member states and the European Parliament to jointly decide the way forward for the use of these biotechnologies in the EU. And my last question for you, uh, the three of you, is how can EU citizens participate in this dialogue and how will you and your organizations continue opposing the deregulation of new GMOs? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting when you look at this statement, so it's about safety and the environment, um, but it, it, it lacks a bit of a complete overview of the issue because for consumers, it's actually much more about eating a food that is not dangerous for you uh, to consume. It's about food systems. It's about business models. It's about the actors involved in those business models that all flow into your decision when you are, as a citizen in a supermarket, making a choice. So then saying that a consumer just wants a product that is safe, um, that is a simplification. It does not uh, capture the complexity um, of, of consumer decisions. So that's just maybe to start with. It is, of course, a bit of a tricky issue for citizens to participate in. Of course, consumer groups are always a good opportunity to be engaged in the consumer groups that are then active at national and European level to, to campaign for transparency. So from the perspective of the organic movement, the easiest choice that we have is actually to keep the existing rules and to be really pragmatic and let the market decide and let the citizens decide what kind of products they want and what kind of um, farming systems they would like to support. And the current legislation offers this transparency. That is why we are so heavily campaigning uh, to maintain it. And um, what we will do is we, of course, talk to policymakers at EU and national level to um, emphasize uh, that the disadvantages of their regulation are actually greater uh, than the advantages. Full Food will do the same. We will also be continuing to meet with uh, EU decision makers here in Brussels. But we also have to keep in mind that this debate isn't and shouldn't only take place place in, in Brussels. We really need now citizens to let their national politicians know how they feel and what kind of food system they want. 
Um, we need to continue raising awareness about these new technologies. So I invite all the listeners to, to read further about them and to share and voice uh, your concerns. And uh, we need you also to get organized and participate in the different platforms that are out there. Uh, Martin mentioned the consumer groups. Uh, you can also reach out to uh, local environmental NGOs or, for example, also slow food uh, communities around you. And um, yeah, get involved and um, campaign for more transparency and uh, more sustainable food systems. As uh, Martin and Madeleine said, advocacy and being part of the uh, political um, discussion is very important and we will definitely be part of it. But what we really are doing as farmers of Europe is proving that what they claim is not true, it is not necessary, it is not innovative, it's really just uh, greenwashing of what their purposes are. And to concluding, I think the Commission proposes to replace the precautionary principle with a patent remuneration hidden under the term innovation principle. When I heard someone claim that in the in the name of the precautionary principle, we cannot risk not to use new GMOs because we will not know what the future will disastrously bring to us and therefore we will have to prepare and use the precautionary principle to dare it all. This is the worst use of uh, the fear that people, of the fear of people. The food system is still working without all this pretended innovation. And we'll close the podcast on this note. Thank you very much again to all three of you for being here today. That was a very interesting discussion on a topic that is not necessarily easy to grasp. So I hope that your interventions will encourage our listeners to follow up on this critical debate over the coming weeks and months and to get active on that issue at national level, as you all suggested. To those who are listening to us right now, do not hesitate to share this podcast with your network and subscribe to the Sven podcast channel on which the Slow Food Europe podcast is hosted. You can find Slow Food Europe, ECVC and IFOM on Twitter to get the latest updates on the topic of new GMOs and many others related to food and agriculture issues. Have a great day.